0: specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com.
1: This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
2: My guest this week is Scott Capeller, a leader in pharmaceutical sales, and more importantly, the father of triplet girls. Scott is a good friend and neighbor of mine in which we share a lot of similar life experiences, one of which is being the father of triplets. One of the life-changing experiences that Scott and I share is that we both went through a significant job loss within our careers. I can always see with great clarity the day I was delivered the news that I was no longer wanted. Scott explains getting the dreaded text, I know you're traveling, can you call in quickly? Being 1,800 miles away from home and thinking nothing of what this call was about Scott called in to the home office and learned of his unanticipated fate. In our conversation, Scott walks through the emotional roller coaster that began on that fateful day. Although he thought hearing the news that he was being released was the bottom, Scott later learned that he wasn't even close to the bottom. Scott published his journey on LinkedIn in what he refers to as his manifesto. Within it, Scott lays out five valuable lessons that all job seekers could benefit from especially during these trying times of COVID-19 with so many layoffs and restructurings. Finally, Scott talks about the impact of losing his job and how it affected his family, the sometimes challenging conversations that he had to have with his wife and his triplet daughters. Going through a job transition can put additional stress on a relationship, especially between a spouse or a partner. So be sure to have a network of people that you can talk to outside of your immediate family. Please enjoy this conversation with Scott Capeller. We got Scott Capeller on the show today, and Scott, full disclosure for our guest, Scott and I are neighbors. We've known each other for, God, what, five, six years now at least. We live in the Metro Detroit area, and one of the unique things that Scott and I share in common is we're the father of triplets. Scott's got girls that just turned 11, and I've got my set of triplets plus one. There's a lot of things that we share together. But one of the interesting things that Scott and I started talking about year and year and a half ago is that Scott went through a job transition. And so given the state of where we're at with COVID-19 and a lot of the furloughs and people going through job loss, I thought it was apropos to have Scott on the show to talk about his experience in 2019. And on top of that, Scott, as he just aptly, called it, is LinkedIn Manifesto, if you will, The Summer of Scott, I think is the title of it. What prompted you, Scott, to write that article? So why don't you just start with a little background about kind of who you are and where you're at, and then lead into this job transition that happened in 2019.
1: Yeah, the manifesto. One of my former bosses called it that, so it's now been stuck as the Capeller manifesto. I graduated from Michigan State many, many moons ago, thought I wanted to go to medical school, didn't go to medical school, and moved into pharmaceuticals. And the hallmark of pharmaceuticals is job transition, whether your own company or out of a company. And 2019 was one of those years where I thought everything had aligned. It was the birth of the manifesto, but I would say even like the dinosaur, the crustaceous period of that was 2016, because the same thing happened. I was with the company for 20 years was on the rise, started as a rep, moved into management, moved into director, executive director roles. And after 20 years, we had a massive downsizing. This is after surviving six downsizing in eight years. And I got tapped on the shoulder right before Christmas of 2016. And it was, hey, you're out. It was one of those, excuse me, (laughs) do you know who I am? That was the start of kind of that manifesto because I had to go look for a job. And thankfully, because all the networking, which I'll probably talk a about, lot about during this call with some of the questions we've talked about already, is I reached out to a ton of people. And I think within 24 or 48 hours, I had three offers. But as I said in the manifesto, I took my time and I found the right thing. At least I thought I did in 2017 and moved up quickly with that company, even to a higher level, was a vice president of sales covering an entire country had executive directors, had a marketing department, had a sales department, all reporting through me. The manifesto is one of those things. that's almost like was a trigger point. It was just interesting because I got let go in the backseat of an Uber in Mesa, Arizona. So I don't know if that's going to be a Johnny Cash song. I guess he's dead, so he can't write it. But maybe Dave Matthews or something could write about it. I was let go in the backseat of an Uber in Mesa, Arizona. But we had a drug trial go bad on our drug that was 80% of the revenue of our company. And I got a call from the chief commercial was like, hey, your job was eliminated. And I was like, when? And he goes, about six hours ago. I'm like, okay, can you fly me home at least back to Detroit? <laughs> so that happened. And so I was back on the prowl again. And you know, the thing about the manifesto is what I did the last time when I did my job search compared to the second time was the first time it was i got to get something i got to get something and frankly i was a problem this. i was on a 78 week severance so i could have taken my time but as it said in the manifesto i think so many times people i think in this environment also have to realize because i think COVID is taking us away from it, is you lose your identity to an extent your identity is who you are somewhat at work paul you're a financial guy you're also a triplet dad but when we introduce ourselves, a lot of times I think about, oh, Paul, what do you do? Or Scott, what do you do? Well, I do this and this is the industry I'm in. You know, in Detroit, what's the answer? Well, what auto company do you auto work? Auto company, yep. Yeah. What do you do at the big three or what do you do at the supplier? Neither one of us are involved in those, but obviously somewhat our our area depends on that area, but we don't identify ourselves as I'm a dad of triplets in one or I'm a dad of triplet daughters who are 11, which is funny because my social media, when you look at my job, it says husband and father. It doesn't say pharmaceutical guy. And I think when I finally wrote that, one of the other things I found, and I think it's important for folks to realize who might be listening is, you have to be your biggest cheerleader. I came up with the term ghosting. My kids taught me ghosting. You get a text from someone and they don't answer, you got ghosted. It happened so many times with recruiters where they would tell you how great you look on paper and how great you are on the phone and your accomplishments are amazing. I'm talking to someone next week, i probably have something for you. And you never hear from the person again. And you start to realize that, in a way you're a product that unless they have a need for you they're not going to call you back because they don't make any money talking to you
2: right and i think that's one of the things that you really highlighted in the manifesto was how recruiting works when you're looking for a job versus the networking when you're looking for a job i don't know what the stats are but it's far more likely that you're going to find your next gig through your network rather than a recruiter or a job board
1: Yeah. I mean, think about job boards. Those jobs have been there for so long, usually 30 to 45 days. And I would tell people that if you apply for something, you don't hear from something, you're going to get frustrated. But the other side of it is, is if you're applying for it, chances are they're already in their second or third round of interviews. And unless you're Bill Gates applying for an IT job, they're going to move on to the people they've already got through the process.
2: Right. And from a legal standpoint, a lot of companies, they have to post a job for legal purposes.
1: Yeah, five days. Five days is what a lot of companies have as a legal purpose. They have to post a position. And here's the thing at the level I was at, 90% of those jobs, you could get 300 resumes for it. They already know who they're hiring before the job's even posted, like it or not. And I think that was part of the tough thing. And the other thing, too, is I think a lot of people go for job title and not, okay, what exactly is the job? And have I defined what I want to do? Now, at the time in 2019, when I got laid off, I mean, the economy was great, tons of jobs. But I really sat down and said, boy, do I want to be a vice president again? Because I think my record for Delta flights in one week was eight
2: flights. That's amazing.
1: But you're sitting at the Salt Lake City Airport and your flight that was leaving at seven o'clock landing at one o'clock in the morning in Detroit now became a red eye because they have mechanical issues and it's going to take off at 1030, which means you're going to land at five o'clock in the morning. And by the way, you have an eight o'clock call. I mean, as somebody told me as I was looking, it's, you know, were you married to your job or were you married to your life? And Unfortunately, we all know what happens sometimes a lot of times when you're married to your job, your life takes second fiddle. And I think when I took a step back, and it took me longer to find a job, because frankly, I had to convince somebody, I want to take two steps back in my career. And I think that was the hard part. But the thing is, I was going to stay true to myself as long as I could. Now, my severance with my last company had run out. I was on unemployment. I wasn't going to McDonald's to work for 12 bucks an hour, stocking shelves at Kroger just to make ends meet. I wasn't getting the $600 extra benefit like COVID now. I was getting 364 bucks every week, but I wanted to stay true to myself. And that's what I did. And it was amazing when I found this job. To your point, it was a network. A guy called a buddy of mine. He had just taken a new job and said, yeah, I'm not looking, but I know a guy who would like to talk to you. That was on a Wednesday. I met the guy on a Thursday. We were wrapped up by Friday morning.
2: I never hear of that, that quick, like bam, 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 and it's done.
1: Yeah. I had never met the guy before until we sat at lunch at a little barbecue place outside of Cleveland. What was it I-80 or I-90. 80. Yeah. Yeah. And we talked for like an hour and a half, 30 minutes. And he goes, okay, what's it going to take to get you? And did I overshoot him? Of course I did. I mean, look, if anybody says, well, I just need a job. I mean, that's okay. Then I can give you nothing then. And he's like, I gotta make a couple phone calls to make sure I can get what you're asking for. And he came back and I talked to the chief commercial officer. I talked to the vice president of sales at that restaurant. And I was like, here's what you're getting with me. And it was The question came back, well, why are you taking such a step back? And then, you know, it was to your point about lifestyle that was, I was always a present dad, or at least I thought I was. But when you're always on the road and it's four o'clock in the morning in LA and you're in a hotel and you have a 7 a.m. meeting, but your kids are calling you because they're just got up for school. And you're like, daddy arrived last night at 11 o'clock last night. It's only four o'clock in the morning now. So daddy has to go back to sleep. Well, it's like, he won't talk to us now. I mean, you hear those things and it rips you apart. And part of you wants to say, Oh, did you have breakfast? Who paid for that? You like the house? You like soccer? You like but not too many 10 and 11 year olds understand that.
2: Right. One of the things that some people that know me know my previous background before I started Tama. So, I had a 20 plus year run in corporate finance, accounting and operations. And you and I knew each other from the sub obviously because we had the triplet connection. But I think one of the things, and I'll use this term, bond our relationship, you'll get a chuckle out of that probably. But I think one of the things that when I first learned that, and I forget how I learned that you got in the call and you were let go, I immediately sent you a text because I went through that in the end of 2015. I was with Lazy Boy at the time, and I had been let go. There was a change in leadership, just didn't fit, and... The ironic thing is Teresa's still working at Lazy Boy. So <laughs> we were both working at the same company and here I'm going to be dismissed and she's still going to have to be there. The fortunate thing is that Lazy Boy had a great package where they set me up with a group called Challenger Green and Christman. They did outplacement services and it was run by Rich Spriegel. And hopefully I'm going to have Rich on the show as well to talk about this. But once a month, he'd have a networking group. The benefit that I saw with that networking group was just being around people that understood what you were going through. Because one of the things that you can only talk to your spouse or partner so much about it, and it causes friction in the house, and there's tension. Oh, there's it's no like, doubt about it. Especially with young kids like we have, it's really tough. So it's not like you can always talk to your spouse or partner about it, but I felt like I had this group, and that's where I really got the most value out of it. And it wasn't going in and complaining about your situation Yes, sometimes that would happen, but then we'd all rally and pick each other up. I have a place in my heart for people that are going through that because I've been through that before. I, we have that shared experience. And so I think that's what led me to making sure I was reaching out to you and whatever I could do to help. And then it seemed like once a week, we'd be running into each other at the library and getting updates. Like, how's it going? Where are you at? I think it's the emotional toll that it takes on you because like what you said or alluded to is that especially, I guess, A type personalities, we wrap ourselves and our identity around our career and what we do. Not necessarily, I'm a husband first and a father. It's, I'm a pharmaceutical sales VP or I'm a business owner. I'm a wealth advisor.
1: You're exactly right. You know, it's funny you say like the tension. I mean, there's the first couple of nights. I mean, I remember getting off the plane in Detroit at 1230 at night and walking to the door at one o'clock in the morning and you know, I went upstairs. Jen's like, you all right. I was like, I'm going back downstairs. And she's like, you know where the Tangare is? I'm like, yeah. She goes, we have tonic in the fridge. I go, who said anything about tonic? But I ruined my gin with tonic at this point? It's that loss of identity. I think that, you know, as I tell people, and I mentioned the article, a guy by the name of Dave De Niro, and it sounds like you had a person too, that you were able to bounce things off of. And I think it was so important to As he said, he goes, if you're doing this nine or 10 hours a day looking for a job, he goes, you will drive a car off a cliff. He's like, you've got a network. And it's not about necessarily just finding a job, but people who know your skill sets and just having the conversation with people. Because, and the other side of it too, that I thought was interesting. He goes, so how many of your team did you have to lay off? I go, well, I had 170 underneath me. And I said, I think there's only about 40 left. And he made a comment. He goes, realize the position you're in, that those people are going to need you to reach out to them, or they're going to need you as a reference or a referral. He goes, don't give everyone a referral or reference. He goes, you know, the good ones and that kind of thing. And I had a number of them follow me to this company that I'm at now. But the other side of it too, was if you're around a lot of people that are in that shoes to your point, you can go right off the cliff quickly. Like, I can't believe this happened to us speech. And all of a sudden your hour session is 59 minutes of woe is me. And you have a bunch of Eeyores in the room. As I tell people, avoid the Eeyores, man, they are energy vampires. Cause at one point, isn't there a cycle of going through it's like first is it happens, then it's. The reaction, well, they kept that person because of this, and da 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 And so you try and justify it. And then you realize, no matter how much I justify it, it doesn't change the situation I'm in. That was that first couple of weeks afterwards. I mean, I even wrote in the manifesto, I was at the Phoenix Sky Harbor airport calling recruiters that I've used in the past that are like, I can't believe you're available. I have a position for you. And of course, never heard from them again. And that's to your point around type A. I had to take a step back and I had to realize, what do I want to do? Honestly, I don't. Know if I want to be on? I don't know if I want to keep Delta Airlines in business every week. In 2018, I did 119 nights at Marriott, which my kids love because we go to Grand Cayman and they open up. We have this suite that overlooks the entire beach, and then you get your bill, and then they go, "Sir, we credited your three thousand dollars bill to you. Thank you for staying at Marriott." Really? It's like, yeah, we paid for it. If I would have known that, I would have had a much better wine instead of the. <laughs> it's that loss of identity that I think so many people. At least I did. And I guess I'll speak for myself. I won't speak for I'm a sole breadwinner in the house. Jen stays home with the kids. Notice I said breadwinner, not the person who's employed, because I am promise you, she probably works way harder than I do. So If you ever listen to this, there you go, hon. Work harder than I do. And I'll hear that forever. But it's, okay, well, I have mortgage payments. I have soccer payments. Avery has swim. Devin has dance. A car payment. We belong to a country club. All those payments, those don't say, oh, you're unemployed. Yeah, why don't we give you a couple months off? you figure out what you're doing. No, no, no. They still expect to be paid. And I think the financial aspect too kept me up a number of nights. What am I going to do? And the nice thing is that we've been pretty smart. I mean, financially, we what I made probably seven years ago is still what we base our budget on. And everything, any raise, any 401k, anything we've done has always just been into savings from that amount. And it's higher than it was seven years ago. Thank God.
2: The technical term to that is called income creep. And I talk to my families that I work with, a lot about income creep and maintaining that lifestyle that you want. But every year when you get those raises or those bonuses, you don't plan on them. They go to whatever financial goal or priority that you want, whether it's saving for retirement, saving more for kids' education, looking at different other investments, and putting together a reserve fund. That's one of the things that you and I talked about. Like you had that. You already made the smart decisions to be able to make sure that if anything ever happened to my job, then okay, we're at least covered, whether I had severance or not. And a lot of people aren't in that boat. And that's one of the one things that I talk about early on when I meet with families is risk management. Talk a lot about dying and death. Do you have an estate plan? Do you have insurance? But then it's like, what do you have as far as reserve fund? If you lost your job tomorrow. How many months could you sustain your current lifestyle? And do you know where you would be able to cut back? And do you know how you would be able to cut back? So that's one of the things that I work with people on is using some tools, whether it's a mint.com or just your regular credit card or at Tama, I have a client portal that people can see their transactions and, and know the, the categories that they're spending on. So they have some idea. A lot of people, they just don't have a, have a clue. I have a color-coded Excel spreadsheet, so
1: <laughs> here's the thing. People are like, God, you're a little neurotic about it. And I'm like, that's what I needed to do to get to, I don't want to say, oh, where I am today. But we looked and I thought, based on emergency reserves and all that stuff, we figured we could probably go two years before all of a sudden it's like, ooh, now we got to tap into things like retirements, IRAs, 401ks. And that doesn't mean, oh, look at me, I'm rich. We don't live a lavish lifestyle. We live in the same house, similar to what you guys live. It's a middle-class suburb, good schools. Our country club bill is like $300 a month. So it's half of what most people's car payments are, if not a third. The biggest thing was getting ahead of it. And the biggest thing we thought too is when I got let go, it's like, okay, what do we have to cut back on? But the biggest thing is we didn't want to tell the kids, well, you can't dance, you can't swim, you can't play soccer. We had to cancel a vacation we were going to take to Aruba, which now got canceled again because of COVID. So there must be something about Aruba they don't want us to go. But I think the key there was. It was sitting down with Jen too when the kids were not around and having, it wasn't difficult discussions at all. It was just saying, hey, here's where we're at and here's what we need to think about. Maybe some, this trip here, this trip here, maybe we change that to a, let's drive to go see somebody in Traverse City. and Let's go there instead of hopping on a plane and going somewhere, in Disney World or something, which I think the kids were disappointed, but it is what it is. And, and frankly, it was really tough to sit down with them and tell them that, hey, I lost my gig and it was the second time. I mean, they didn't even know the first time. They did not know that I lost my job. And frankly, I was only out of work for about two months, so it wasn't tough to hide from them. But this one was tougher because they were used to me leaving Sunday night to fly to Boston. I would put them to bed at 7.30 or 8, and I'd drive to Metro and be on a plane. Thank God we had all of our reserves and everything done. To your point, I'd like the word income creep. I've never heard of that one. I don't know why I haven't heard of that, but it's something we've just done to be smart that because my industry and in a way we're kind of like the autos with, we downsize. I mean, every few years, once a drug goes off patent, a clinical study comes out that takes away your market share Start saying, well, do we need 300 sales reps? We don't. And all of a sudden that's the first way to get rid of cost.
2: We'll put a link to the show notes, the LinkedIn article, as we keep referring to as the manifesto. But if I go through that, Scott, obviously I think your step one was take a breather. And I think you had like three or four steps. So why don't we, touch on those kind of summarize that and quickly because I think a lot of people that are going through what you went through and what I went through now I think that they would find that helpful so yeah number one is take a breather
1: you've got to take a breath you have to realize you just had a massive what do they say it's loss of a loved one or loss of a spouse divorce loss yeah. of a child and then job loss is like number three four or five on the human social depression slash so anxiety scale I'm sure I'm butchered what it's called but you get the point the amount of pain you feel. And there were a number of sleepless nights, or I should say, gin induced sleeping nights, you know, in my case, and you have got to take a step back, you have got to take a step back. And you have got to do a mental kind of inventory, you have to do a physical inventory, you have to look and say, boy, what am I going to do to fill my time now? Because all of a sudden, I mean, I went from backseat of an Uber to the next day where my email was shut off. Well, what did I do every morning when I woke up, I checked email. And I can't do that anymore. I used to have a call with my marketing person. Well, I don't do that now because I'm not employed. And I think you got to take a step back and realize that the thing that occupied, at least in my mind, 10 to 12 hours a day is now gone. And you can't sit there and do nothing. You've got to do something. And so it's taking a step back and not contacting recruiters, getting your resume ready, which is the number one thing. Well, I have this time now, so now I can do it. No, no, no. You need to take time for yourself. And I didn't do that. I didn't do that for a few days until I met this guy named Dave De Niro, who's like, I just need you to take a week off. I need you to go somewhere. You worried about losing your house? No, I wasn't. Any of those things. He goes, "And, And you need to take a few days. What do you like to do, Scott? Oh, I like to work out. I like to play golf. I like to do this. Then go do it. I was like, Well, Dave, it's the middle of February and it's Michigan. So I don't know how much golf I was playing. But I remember the kids would go to school and I'd go see a movie. I bet you I saw three or four movies a week. My wife would text me and go, What are you doing? I'm at a movie. Where the heck do you think I am?
2: I did that a few times as well. On one hand, it was so weird. And on the other hand, it was like liberating.
1: Yeah. You've got to do something where, and the funny part is, and Dave made a good point. He goes, the first thing you have to remember in this is you will work again. So take a deep breath. You will work again. I have no problem sharing it. They gave me six to seven months of severance. So I had time and the average job search at that level was six to nine months. And I remember him saying, like all my buddies I would text them, it's like, hey, what are you doing? They're like, I'm working, you unemployed bastard. They were mad at me almost too. I mean, obviously, it was a playful mad. Like, their wives were like, can you please leave my husband alone? He cannot golf with you today or go to a movie with you or whatever. It's like, why? I mean, I'm not working. And frankly, I kind of enjoyed that role for a while because I would be texting my buddies going, wow, look. And come June, I was still looking. And I would take a picture of like the third fairway at my country club and go, oh my God, look where my ball is. And my buddies would be like, I don't want to repeat the swear words I got back. But when I say take a breath is step one. It's not just that first week all placement counselor said you need to take a breath every single day and realize you will work again because I promise you, because my sister just went through this too, not too long ago, she got a job and she goes, crap, I only have two weeks before I start. And when I got my job, I had three weeks and I can tell you, I packed so much fun into those three weeks. I think I golfed 18 holes a day. I took my kids somewhere. I had fun those three weeks because that was the last three weeks of vacation in a row where someone was paying me. Take a breath is more than just, hey, you just got laid off. It's, you got to take a mental inventory because you're going to make mistakes. I compare it to a relationship. If you break up with a girlfriend or a spouse or whatever, a lot of people, I'm going to get right out back and go right back in the dating pool. You might want to just take a step back and just, you kind of have to do a self inventory. And I think it's so important when you take a breath.
2: Right, I think the second step that you laid out—I think you called—I'm using air quotes—the process—is that right?
1: Yeah. Oh, the process sucks. It's speed dating. I mean, that's what it is. Because you go to Indeed, you go to Glassdoor, you network, you do all these things, and you talk with recruiters. I mean, recruiters call you constantly. Oh, I hear you're available. I just want ten minutes of your time, and blah blah blah. Your resume is fantastic. You should have no problem finding something. Great. Can you help me? Well, I don't have anything right now, but I'm pretty sure you'll find something fast. Just time goes by. And then you start having phone interviews. You have the phone interviews. You have the Zoom interviews like we're doing right now. I know it's a podcast. I don't know why I got dressed up for your podcast. <laughs> right
2: That's just the type of guy you are. So disappointed. I mean, I'm not doing buttons right now. <laughs> but
1: I even wore a nice white t-shirt under this dress shirt. How about that? But I think it's that process. It's a grind. And part of that process is I think, you know, because I've had friends that are laid off now and They're like, man, I'm working from like 6 a.m. to midnight every day trying to find a gig. And I'm like, they don't just grow during that time. You need to do your networking. You do three, four hours a day and then go do something else if you're on severance. Even if you're not on severance, you've got to be able to have that break because looking for a job is awful. I mean, it's almost like a single person who's desperate to get married trying to find the right person. And a lot of times you will find the wrong person. And I even wrote in there that I got all the way with one company where I flew out to New Jersey, had an interview with them, got home, got a call the next day. What'd you think of the interview? Oh, I thought it went really, really well. All right, well, I think we're going to offer you the job. I'm like, all right, we'll send the details. And I remember sitting down with Jen and I didn't even tell her what I was going to be paid. I looked at her, and I just don't know if this is right. And that's part of the process too. And I called them the next day. I thanked them for their time. I said, look, you're a bunch of great guys, but I just don't think I'm the right person for this role. And I was worried they were going to be like, well, why'd you fly out here? They were fantastic. They were like, man, it's so refreshing that someone turned us down and called us live and said, this is why I made this decision. I was like, well, I was going to email you. I said, I think you took the time with me. I, I owed you. And I think, but the process can be a grind. It's, I don't know how many times I flew somewhere and did an interview. I mean, there was one time I went to a company in Boston. That's a pharmaceutical biotech that I went there. I sat with the vice president of sales. I sat with the vice president of marketing, the person who'd be my boss, all this stuff. And each one was scheduled for 45 minutes. None of them lasted longer than 20 minutes. And by the time I got to the last one, I looked at the guy, I go, can I just ask you a point blank question? And he goes, yeah, you seem pretty direct. I go, you guys already know who you're hiring, don't you? And he just looked at me and I said, that's all you need to say. If that's the case, I said, I have no problem being your guinea pig. Because like I said, I got a little bit of interviewing tips and tricks here and, and that kind of thing. But it just seems like you guys already have your mind made up because people are coming in, asking two, three questions and saying, well, what questions do you have for us? I said, so this obviously isn't the right fit. And I remember going back to the airport, and hopping on a plane and flying home. There was one interview where a guy, it was a two hour interview. He asked me one question, but he talked for an hour and 58 minutes. And, and I was just like, I wanted to say, Hey, how's your shoulder? Because I don't know if you threw it out of socket, patting yourself on the back. You sound amazing. I'd hire you for the role you're in, but I don't know. And I got a call and they're like, yeah, he just didn't connect with you. I'm like, well, I'm a hell of a listener, obviously. But that's part of the process is you're going to go through that. And you're going to be frustrated in interviews and, people who are looking for gigs, learn from each interview. One thing I try and do, because I've interviewed probably a thousand to 2000 people for roles is if I didn't get a role and I respected the people I interviewed, like the two I mentioned, I didn't call back and say, Hey, can you give me feedback? Maybe the one who talked forever would say you need to listen better. I guess I give feedback to people and I tell them the interview's over. I've already moved on with another candidate, but I'm willing to teach you and coach you and tell you, here's why you didn't get the job.
2: And that's what a lot of people I think miss out on is that No one takes that extra step that you just talked about to give some, whether it's constructive, critical feedback. When you go into these interviews, you just want to know what I could do better or just something. Just something's better than nothing. But I think one of the things when it comes to the process, like we've talked about a lot, is the networking. I think it's so critical. Once you land your next role or whatever, then people like stop the networking. I think that's a critical error that a lot of people make. So when you're still gainfully employed, you still want to continue the networking. You want to continue to pay it forward, if you will, helping somebody else out. But you just never know. You never know.
1: It's a great point. I mean, I can tell you, and hopefully my boss won't watch this. I had a friend from the past reach out to me and said, hey, I have a gig I'm really interested in looking at you with. And it was a guy that, as odd as it sounds, my boss is calling me the second I make that comment. He reached out to me and he got laid off nine months ago from his job. This is a guy who's like way above any level I've ever been in. I knew him at my previous company of 20 years and he reached out and said, look, I'd love for you to come work for me. He goes, I can't tell you how many times I read your manifesto and got it through my day as I was unemployed. And I think that's another thing of networking. And one of the things I am most proud of of that is how many people, I think it's got, I don't know, 180,000 views, all that stuff, is how many people have proactively reached out to me I mean, I've had people say, can I just have 10 minutes of your time? And I'm like, my time is not that valuable where you have to ask. I mean, you can reach me through LinkedIn and I have no problem. And I've talked to people I've never met before. I've talked to people from other countries who have been like, I'm going through this now and blah, 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 and hit home. And your network will help you find a job. But to your point, it doesn't stop when you get a job. And one of the things I wrote in there is pay it forward. If someone calls you and needs a hand, it's five minutes out of your day. That's it. You have five minutes. If you don't have five minutes for someone that, as a networker, guess what? You're still stuck in the same thing of my job's my identity, and I can't give a friend five minutes. You've got to be able to support that because, to your point, it'll pay it forward, but I think it'll come back in spades as well. Because guess what? There's so many people now. I mean, we're no longer in a society where my dad was at General Electric for 42 years. Nobody works at a company for 42 years anymore. I thought I'd be at my first employer for 50 years, right? I was hired at 22, Then I realized, why the hell do I want to work till I'm 72? Are you nuts? I don't even want to work till I'm 42 and I'm 45. But you're going to be bouncing around with jobs, either through layoffs or through, wow, here's an opportunity or someone got promoted above you. And you're like, well, I just don't want to work for that person to your point around the leadership change. And that networking is, I think everybody thinks of networking. Well, if I'm networking, I'm not looking for a job. No, you are. And I think part of it is telling people, I'm unemployed. I'm actively looking right now. Do you know of anything? I think that's a huge step that people need to know that's not a horrible thing. It happens to everyone. I think the average is what, three or four times in a career?
2: I think it's higher than that now.
1: Why am I on this? Oh, great. There goes my depression and anxiety scale up. (laughs) I've already done it twice. I don't want to do it again. I want to leave on my own accord for one of these things, just to say I dumped a girlfriend. I think that you have to be networked in, but here's the thing. It's part of that. If you use your network to find a job, then guess what? Now you're the network that other people need to lean into and you need to keep doing it. So I think it's a great point.
2: Yeah. I think there's a book called, and I'll link to this in the show notes too, The Go-Giver. I don't know if you've read that or not, but that's something that Rich Spriegel had, had always recommended to me as well. And I read it and it's great. So I think the point that we've just been talking about, I think that was like the third part of your manifesto. Is that, does that sound right?
1: It's been a while. I don't know if I can read it. after this. I don't know if I'll ever listen to this because my voice sounds funky. I'll be like, God, I sound like a moron.
2: No, you're doing great. I've read it. <laughs> is there anything else that you wanted to touch on regarding the manifesto? I think we've covered a lot of the points that I had going through it. So
1: I think if there's one thing that I walk away with, should this ever happen to me again, I will take the time to breathe. I will take the time to kind of recalibrate. And I think the biggest thing that I learned from going through it is. You have to be a champion for yourself. you got to be your cheerleader, your product, your brand, all those things. And I know some people that, well, that person's brand is this. Well, there's people I'm sure I've run the wrong way. I mean, I'm sure that line is long. And there's people that are like, well, I'll follow him anywhere. And I think the biggest thing I tell people that I network with is just be true to who you are. If you're the jerk in the room, be the jerk in the room. It's be true to yourself. Breathe network and when you do land that job that you have i think it's your job to you're up the ladder down the ladder et cetera. your job is to extend a hand to someone else who needs to get on the ladder i can tell you that when you start looking if i had a nickel for every time someone said this well i know who my friends are now that i've been let go well remember guys most of these people are your coworkers i know we talk about friends at work unless you're having them over to your house on the weekends and beers and all those things they're your coworkers i have 10 people that work for me I'd love to consider them like a family and friends, but guess what? My family's on the other side of the door over there outside of my office. And my friends are people that I'm going to text with after this and say, what time we golfing tonight or tomorrow? My coworkers are people who are on zoom conference calls with me each week that have a role and responsibility that I hold them accountable for. So I would be careful when saying, well, now I know who my friends are. No, you know who the people who are allegiant to you somewhat that are givers, the go givers in your mind. So, but just be your cheerleader and pay it back. I mean, the last thing too, and I'm rambling probably, is have someone that you can go to that's going to be real with you.
2: Yeah, that's a critical point. It gets back to what we were talking about earlier. Like, You need that constructive feedback. You need somebody that's going to be there to give you the hug when you need it or the tough love when you need it.
1: Yep. and here's the thing. It can't be your spouse. It can't be your parent. They have a different role in your life. You need that third-party objective person to be like, you sound like you're in the dumps. Why don't you take a day off of doing this and let's talk tomorrow? And I've had that conversation too with Dave, who worked with me. And there were times where he said, Okay, what's your plan? And I'd go through it. He goes, Okay, that's not a plan. That's a wish list. And part of me is like, God, this guy's an asshole. But guess what? I can tell you that Dave De Niro got a pretty nice bottle of wine and a thank you card for me. And I still keep in contact with him because just his advice is what I needed to hear, not necessarily what I wanted to hear, but it helped me get to where I am today.
2: Let's transition to a couple of the last topics we want to talk about is life with triplets during COVID. (laughs) Dear God. What's that been like for you and Jen?
1: Yeah. So I'm surprised we're not a Dateline episode yet, to be totally honest with you. Because when you have triplet 11-year-olds, I mean, they're, I don't know why I got talked into giving them cell phones for their birthday this last month. Oh, Scott. Which I don't know why I did that. I mean, I don't know why Verizon had to, just when we were talking about it, I get a thing that says you can get three iPhone sevens for free. And so if you upgrade your phone, I'm like, okay, why not? So I upgraded my phone and they got free phone. I could say in the beginning, it was tough. I would say that our patience and our tempers probably flare a little bit more than they would in a normal environment. And there's probably times where I have to take a step back and say, boy, am I being the dad, the husband I want to be? That doesn't mean I'm out at the bar every night running around chasing skirts and those types of things. So that's just not who I am. I have four women in my life I can't keep happy alone. I don't know if I need a fifth.
2: No. I tell Teresa all the time, I'm like, I have no room. <laughs> it doesn't even cross my mind. <laughs> no.
1: Uh-huh. No, I, no. Are you kidding me? I mean, I have four women yelling at me. Like I said, I don't need a fifth yelling at me or a sixth. I would say that the beginning was probably a struggle. I think then we learned to live with it. And now I think at times, tension flare, right? I mean, we have triplet 11-year-old daughters. They're going to argue. They're going to fight. I understand the arguments. Jen's an only child. My wife's an only child. So I think she goes, are they ever going to get along? I'm like, my brother's a year older than me. And we text or call each other three or four times a day. And in that age group, we were fighting every moment of the day. So I try and tell her, yeah, they'll be best friends eventually, but that's the age they're at. But I know we're going to talk about school a little bit, so I don't want to jump ahead. But I think with the online learning was tough because all the electronics, I mean, they have a Chromebook from school. They have an iPhone. We have a Mac computer. I think they're to the point where the next YouTube video they click is you've reached the end of YouTube. Please go do something constructive. YouTube 2.0 doesn't launch for another three years. But it's been hard. It has been hard. And here's the thing, as I tell my wife, it's tough to judge us because if you look around every person in our neighborhood, Paul, and you included, we've never been in this situation. This is all new. There's no playbook. You don't say, oh, we're in a pandemic and the kids don't have school. Here's what we, we're on step seven. There is none. We're learning as we go. And are there times that, we have to take a step back and say, wow, I'm really being mean right now. Let me go hug my kids right now and just say, hey, it's been tough. It hasn't been easy. No matter how big your house is, the walls start collapsing after the first week.
2: That's right. And you know, full disclosure, my experience to this, I probably haven't hugged my kids or Teresa enough. I've been so caught up in the, some of the minutiae of it and obviously running Tama and making sure that my other almost 50 families are taken care of. My client's over the years, they've become family, an extension of our family. And I've had a few of them call me and like, how are you doing? Like, how are things at home with Teresa and the kids? And I'm like, it's really refreshing to hear that from a client or family that I work with that they want to make sure my mental well being is still intact, that I'm managing all their life assets. It's different with us because we've got two boys and two girls. So with the boys, I really try to empathize because think about it, like, if we were nine years old, And we had this electronic device where we had to do all of our homework on it, but then it had the YouTube button and then it had all the buttons with our favorite games. There's no amount of willpower for a nine-year-old boy or 10-year-old or whatever the age is to be able to not get distracted. That's where I don't know where this virtual learning goes, where it's not necessarily all on, on a device that can be distracting. Maybe it's like just getting back to a darn book.
1: And that's the thing, right? It's too easy to click away. I mean, my kids ask, Daddy, this happened to you when you were a kid. I was like, no. I tell them, I was like, you guys realize I graduated from high school in 92 and college in 96. I remember the internet in college, but I don't remember it being the internet in college. I went to 3 West at Michigan State University and studied with my brother and our roommates and buddies and stuff. And I remember pulling out textbooks. I didn't have a phone to look at. Like if I wanted to have fun, I'd have to shoot a rubber band at somebody across from me instead of send them a text that says, hey, you're ugly. I mean, I would set a watch and say, hey, at nine o'clock, we're leaving here and we're going to b Dub Skip beer. Okay, perfect. That sounds great. It's a whole different world with kids now. And I think my concern a little bit with our kids and just about every kid is there are so many distractions right now. TikTok, Instagram, they don't have a Facebook account yet, thank God, but they're reading things on the internet and they're coming to us with questions that I don't know if I'd ask my parents when they were 11, when I was 11. I- well, that's
2: good that they're asking you.
1: Yeah. Yeah, can you explain to us why this bomb went off in Beirut yesterday? It's like, well, first of all, it wasn't a bomb. A firework factory that hit some fertilizer and it blew up. Well, you fertilize the lawn. Is the lawn going to blow up? I'm like, boy, I'm not handling this well. I don't know, maybe. It has been a struggle, and I'm worried about how this year will go. We'll talk about the board meeting, I'm sure, which was a fun topic in COVID.
2: We may avoid that. <laughs> we may avoid yeah, that. no, that's fine. I can give
1: you my thoughts on COVID too, if you're interested in those. But I think it's, I worry about them falling behind and not being ready. And here's the thing I keep having to tell myself, they're going into sixth grade, which is the first year of middle school in our school district. They're not going to be behind two months when they get to senior year in high school. And when they go to college, they're not going to be, well, those two months in the sixth grade really screwed me up for college, dad. That's not going to happen right like i don't see that my biggest thing is making sure and you talked about it earlier or we talked about job transition and what was important to me now when i come home from work or i'm done for the day that i'm sitting down with them and reviewing for like half an hour or 40 minutes like what did you guys do today and i can tell you i did not do that in april or may or june with the first round well when we start again here in the next month i want to go through with them like what did you guys cover i told my wife it's like let's come up with a creative way maybe we do like a quiz bowl once a week I mean, we're smart enough. Both of us are college graduates. And do something, maybe have some friends over and say, hey, you had the same lesson. Let's have a competition with it. Let's have some fun with it. That's a good idea. Yeah, trying to figure out different ways where we're involved. That's going to be the trick for us. And I'll be totally transparent. I think April May, I was like, ah, oh, they're not teaching anything anyway. So who really cares? But I think now that it's going to be for a while, I think it's going to be important to get involved.
2: Yeah. So I guess this will kind of, Get us to our last topic as we wrap up. But what are your thoughts on school? I mean, obviously, the district that we live in before last night's board meeting, they were giving us two options one, go back 100% or do 100% virtual. And this thing has just grown, not political, but it's just exploded with emotion. Maybe that's the word. It's just become an emotional hotbed of what do you do with kids in school and parents? And we're unique. Not to play the triplet card or the multiple card, but we're different. And one of the things is, is that I don't know if you split the girls up each year, but we have. Up until this year, we've always had the triplets in separate classes. And it's really worked because they're different people. It's funny. It's like, you have a set of triplets. They must all be the same. No, they're like completely opposite. They're all different people. You just can't pigeonhole them because they're triplets or twins or quads or whatever. Everybody has their own personality and it's always worked out best to have them separated. But in a virtual learning environment, trying to manage three different teachers and three different ways of doing things and never being on the same schedule, that's what was the hardest for Teresa and I is managing four different teachers
1: through the spring. So we separated them. So our kids went to preschool at a Jewish day school when they were four and we separated them that year. And they've been separated ever since to your point, even when my mom is the one who wants to dress them alike. So we tell the kids a second, grandma gets a picture, change your clothes because you guys are all individuals. I can tell you all three of my kids dress differently. And I think with schools, I mean, we were hundred percent sending our kids back live I know there's been Facebook posts about, well, why would you do that? And the teachers are at risk and et cetera, et cetera. And and here's the thing. I think all of us are at risk. I think of the guy that put the bananas on the shelf at Kroger the other day that I bought. I think about the cop, the firefighter. I think of the restaurant workers. I think of the first line responders, obviously. I mean, being in pharmaceuticals, I've been in doctor's offices. I've been in hospitals with my job since we went back here in May. We have put ourselves at risk too. And I understand their concerns. I also understand they have a very powerful teacher's union. I'm not going to go into the politics of it, but that plays into it too, to an extent. And I know a lot of people, and I think there's people that have pre-existing conditions that there should absolutely be a virtual option for. The decision last night to start October 30th live makes no sense to me because then you're starting school in the middle of cough and cold season. Trust me, I go to Kroger, I have a mask on and I sneeze and 12 people look at me and like pull their garlic in their cross going, vampire, vampire, he's COVID. But I also question, and without emotion, I present this objectively, I'm a big stats and data analysis guy. That's what I do for work.
2: And you put that out on Facebook fairly regularly, by the way. So
1: I find it interesting that the Michigan CDC coronavirus website removed all the deaths for everybody under the age of 19 because it said that if there's less than five deaths. We're not going to report them. Well, there's been four deaths out of 2.2 million children in Michigan. So... This year, we lost 186 kids to flu so far, same website. So we were like, well, it's not the flu. I'm like, you're right. The flu has a vaccine and we still lost 186 kids. And I know we've lost older people, but you also have to look at, and we keep talking about, well, look at the, one of the things I said last night is, well, the cases are rising. You're a financial guy. Would you rather make 3% on hundred dollars or would you rather make 3% on a million dollars? That's the analogy I would use because our positives have been from 2.9 to 3.9 over the last how many weeks? I think it's eight or nine weeks. But our testing's gone from 15,000 people to almost 40,000 people a day. Well, you're going to get more cases when you test more. I also think when people talk about asymptomatic transmission, you can't make the assumption that someone that's asymptomatic is just going to give it to people, then that person's going to be in the hospital because they got it from an asymptomatic carrier. Asymptomatic people give asymptomatic disease to other people all the time, and those people are asymptomatic, which pass it on. And I guess the last thing I'll make a point out of the way I was comfortable sending them to school is. CDC even came out and the news doesn't report it is they're saying that the number of cases we have in the United States is anywhere from six to 12 times as many as reported because people only got tested when they were really, really sick for the longest time. And we have thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people with asymptomatic viral loads right now that would test positive, but they don't know it. And those asymptomatics are causing more asymptomatics as well, not just symptomatic disease. So, I'm a big, I would rather have my kids in school knowing that the hospitalization rate and the case fatality rate is, I think at this point, it's two out of every 10,000 for kids.
2: I'm with you on that. And I think from my perspective, if you set the emotional bit of it aside and just being scared to a certain point, I look at it, especially with my boys, it's a different mindset. When they're in school, they're in school and their mindset shifts. They know that there's structure. They know what they need to do. When they're at home, their mindset shifts. I can play my games. I can do whatever I want to do. It's not a, I'm at school, I'm at home, but in the first three hours of the day, I have to be learning. This is my school. They'll never see the house as their school. Some kids probably have adapted well, like our oldest triplet, Madison, our girl. She's done really well. Our boys have struggled a little bit about it. And again, I go back to that having a level of of empathy with them, with the devices and things like that. But some kids can make that mind shift and some kids can't. And I just thought from our perspective, from Teresa and I, we were planning on going back because we see the data as well. But I wanted our kids to be in an environment where they could socialize again because that's the thing like we talked about, I think, last week you're not going to keep kids from socializing in our neighborhood. They're all going to be around each other. They're all going to be playing.
1: Look at the cases that have been in the news recently. You had 185 people at Harper's in East Lansing, which holds a special place in my heart. Cause that's where me and Jennifer had our first date way back in 2003 and they had 185 people, but through contact tracing, there's been zero hospitalizations or zero deaths. So why are you, Oh my God, look, they all got together and look how much they spread around. Yeah, but nobody went to the hospital. Nobody died through all the contact tracing. Then you have this, Chelsea, they had this, or was it Celine? They had the huge graduation party where 40 people became infected. Once again, contact tracing, no deaths, no hospitalizations. And in Georgia, you have a camp where, what, 80% of the camp was COVID positive? What the next question weren't answered. How many went to the hospital? How many died? The answer is zero. We don't report flu that way. So why are we reporting it this way? People are now talking, well, the long-term effects of this disease are now happening. I was like, you can't have long-term effects four months in. And flu has long-term effects, too. So I think when we looked at it, to your point, I think you're looking at the reward of school versus the risk, as we were. And I think, I think it's safe for them to go to school, wear a mask, six feet of distance, etc. cetera. But I think the biggest thing that we've gotten wrong so far is we're not asking those secondary and tertiary questions. Okay, well, seven people died. Do we have any underlying conditions with them? We have proof that there's been people that have been in motorcycle accidents post-mortem have been tested for COVID and counted a COVID death, even though COVID didn't take the motorcycle and run it into a wall. That's my concern with some of the statistics. And that's why when CDC comes out and says, Hey, it's safe to go back to school. Why don't we listen to those experts then? So that's, I don't know. I think the kids should be in school, but I'm not on the school board and it is what it is. And we're going to do the best we can. My thing is as I talked to my wife is how do we change it for them? How do we change it for our kids this time?
2: Agreed. So that's, I think, a good place to kind of end our conversation. But as I'm stealing this one from another podcast, friend of mine, Patrick O'Shaughnessy, who has Invest Like the Best podcast that I listen to, he's come up with this great closing question that he asked all of his guests. And Patrick, sorry, I'm going to steal this from you. But his question is, what's the kindest thing that anyone's ever done for you?
1: I don't know if it's one thing. I will say it's a group of people that did something for me and that's shaped me who I am by giving me the hard, we use the words tough love. I think of my parents. I think of mentors at work that I still talk to people that had the courage to tell me things I didn't want to hear, knowing that I would debate the living shit out of them to tell them they're wrong. But then realize 24 hours later, it's like, you know, that person was telling me something that I needed to listen to because I can tell you that skills and talents and stuff can take you so far, but If you listen to the people who truly care about you and give you feedback and say, you know what, you really need to change this. Here's the perception that, I mean, in work, it was, Scott, you're probably the smartest person in the room, but holy mackerel, dude, you railroad some people and you shame them practically. And that's tough to hear. It's like, well, it's not my fault. They're dumb. That was my usual reaction. But it was like, well, take a step back and how do you build consensus in a group instead of just because you're right doesn't mean that it's the right thing we should do. And having those types of conversations with people at work, in my personal life, and the coaching I've been given, and the opportunities that have been brought because I've made those changes. That's what I would tell everybody, whether you're a kid on a baseball team or whether you're an adult in a job, listen to those people that provide you the feedback that probably rubs you the wrong way. But in a way, the devil on your shoulders going, Yup, that's 100% true. So when I hear what's the kindest thing, I honestly think that's one of the kindest things anybody has ever done for me is because they had the courage to say, you might not want to hear this, but dude, you have such potential, but you are your own worst enemy. And here's why. And I think when I look at the kindest things, I think of my parents and the lessons they taught me and the things I didn't want to hear. I think that's who shaped me who I am. And that's what gives me a lot of my morals and values. And I think that's the best gift anybody could ever give you is just to be honest with you. That's a huge thing.
2: Awesome. Well, I think that's a great way to kind of wrap up our conversation. Scott, I can't thank you for the time and look forward to catching up with you around the neighborhood here soon. So I appreciate the opportunity. Always a good time to catch up and talk, my friend. That's right. That's right. Thanks, Scott. All right. Be good. Thank you, sir.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast.